well, a cardboard sign in yellow and blue pleads, forgive us. This sign sits opposite the Ukrainian embassy in Moscow, beside barricades patrolled by guards. They ask, forgive us. Some there feel the weight of the debt, a debt that accumulates this morning as we gather. And they ask, forgive us. That's a tough ask. The casualties this morning in the Russian attack against Ukraine are estimated at 2,000. The numbers differ. They vary on that. That number includes innocent children. Who can forgive? Christians. Christians can. It may be difficult. More accurately, it is difficult. Many of us know that. Some sit here this morning wrestling with forgiveness, struggling to forgive. In fact, if you've ever been wronged in some significant way, it seems almost impossible. The sins committed against us, they can be quite painful. Their effects can linger for, for even a lifetime. But even when we want to forgive, to reach the peak of that mountain, to climb atop it, it seems out of reach. just goes on and on and on. How can we possibly forgive? Well, the way to fully forgive is to realize the forgiveness we've received. It almost sounds too simple, doesn't it? I mean, forgiveness can be so hard sometimes there's got to be a series of complicated steps to navigate to get there. But there's not. You can forgive right now where you sit. And you can do it because the power of God is in this. Because at the moment of faith, you received the Holy Spirit giving you new life and new ability. God delights in helping us forgive. He delights in helping us be more like Christ. John MacArthur said, forgiveness is the most godlike act of a person. It's the most godlike act a person can do. You're never more like God than when you forgive. Well, his son Jesus calls us to a life of forgiveness this morning. He tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. The message has one point. Because we're forgiven, we forgive. Our message comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 25. We've been generously forgiven of extreme offenses by the mercy of God. In turn, we forgive others with that mercy. When we speak of forgiveness this morning, we're speaking of an act that we choose to do. To borrow a definition from Vanitha Risner, forgiveness, quote, is to surrender the right to hurt others in the response to the way they've hurt us. Vanitha understands hurt. She's lost three babies due to miscarriage. 
She lost one baby due to the error of a doctor, and she lost a husband due to unfaithfulness. But her depth of hurt has given way to a depth of forgiveness. And this morning's parable is going to teach us just what forgiveness is. And as we wade into this now, let me make a few remarks up front as to what it is not. First of all, forgiveness is not approval. When we forgive, we're not expressing some kind of approval for the deed done against us. We're not minimizing the sin. We're not minimizing the hurt. We're not just shrugging our shoulders at some sin that's been committed. Forgiveness is not freedom from consequences. Just consider the law for a moment. One who's forgiven may still need to answer to a judge or to a justice system. You could forgive a thief from stealing from your car, but he would still have to answer for that crime. Forgiveness also is not a guarantee of restoration. It doesn't promise automatic renewal of a relationship. In fact, it may even be unwise to renew a relationship depending upon the sin committed. Well, Jesus teaches forgiveness. And he does so in response to a question. Verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Now in a moment our Lord is going to teach a parable. A parable is a story meant to communicate truth. And our Lord is the master storyteller. He tells 39 parables across four Gospels in the New Testament. But the parable he tells this morning is in response to Peter's question. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? This question makes sense, doesn't it? But practically, many of us might even ask it. Boy, to feel the sting of sin, to have someone sin against us again. Lord, do I have to forgive him one more time? It also makes sense in the context or in light of Matthew chapter 18. Looking back at verse 15, we learned last time that there are support for two different translations of that verse. One reads, if your brother sins, in other words, it's this broad brush, if anyone should sin, any brother... But another reads, if your brother sins against you, a more narrow application. It's more specific. Peter's question this morning seems to work well with that translation. Because he hears the teaching then of Jesus in verses 15 through 20. And what does he want to know? Jesus, what are the limits to this? What are the boundaries? When may I stop forgiving? Verse 15, do I have to go and show him his sin again? Verse 16, do I have to take along one to two believers again? Verse 17, do I need to take it before the church again? Certainly, Jesus, there is a cap. There is a ceiling to this. Up to seven times? By the way, in the day in which Jesus and Peter lived, there was a principle among the Jews of forgiving up to three times. On the fourth offense, you no longer need to forgive. 
This morning, Peter seems quite generous in light of that. This giant of generosity is offering up to seven times. But Jesus removes the lid. And he says, there is no cap, Peter. My version reads, you must forgive 70 times seven. It's probably better translated 77 times. But this whole matter is not about 490 times or 77 times. It's not thinking about, well, yesterday you were at 489 and last week you passed 76. You fulfilled your quota. That is not the message of Jesus today. No limits are to be set. That is the message. Whenever forgiveness is sought, forgiveness is granted. Notice, too, in this passage, the emphasis on the family of God. In verse 21, Peter used the word brother. He asked specifically about a brother. This is familial language. This is the language of a, of a community of faith. If you look down at verse 35, the Lord will conclude with that same word, forgive his brother. And remember, Matthew 18 has really unfolded as a teaching on, on relationships within the community of God. Back in verse 7, we are to keep other believers from sinning. That is how we are to interact with one another. In verses 15 to 17, we learned last week how to pursue a brother or sister who's wandering or who's caught in sin. As a result, this teaching here is not about salvation, our salvation is not dependent upon our abilities, namely our ability to forgive. This is primarily about forgiveness within the body of Christ. Does this mean that we withhold forgiveness from the unsaved? Absolutely not. In fact, we might even argue that we live in a very dark world and our forgiveness towards the lost might just be the light of Jesus they need to see how beautiful and wonderful he is. But the focus of the passage is toward repentant believers. And Jesus illustrates this using a parable. I want to read verses 23 through 35 together as a unit, and then we'll interpret it and finally apply it. It's the parable of the unforgiving slave. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle account with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe me. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved 
and came and reported their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Verse 23 sets the scene for us. There we have the kingdom of heaven. This would be the the rule or the reign of God. The king in the parable is God himself, and the slaves would be the people of God. The parable begins well enough. It's this heartwarming tale of compassion. We see a slave owed a bunch of money. Servant might be a better translation. The one who was brought before the king was a servant of the king. In fact, in this time, it's quite possible that servants or slaves were stewards of a vast amount of resources for their owner or for their master. We might think of a servant in terms of scrubbing a floor or doing some kind of menial housework. That was not necessarily true in this time. A servant could manage a great amount of the king's property. That seems to be the case in our parable. Well, this servant seems to have dug himself quite a hole. He owed 10,000 talents. A talent was a unit of measurement. It could be anywhere from 60 to 80 pounds. Some try to guess what that modern equivalent would be in dollars. The estimates are anywhere from millions of dollars to billions of dollars. It would really depend upon what the, the, the unit was. Was it gold, silver, and so forth? The word for 10,000 is the largest number in Greek. Numbers don't go up past that. It's translated as myriads in the book of Revelation. And the point that Jesus is making with all this is that the amount is astronomical. He is essentially saying this is a debt that is not payable. Well, for the slave, this is disaster. This is absolute disaster. There is no way he can pay this debt. The king's going to sell him. He's going to sell his wife and his children. He's going to sell his belongings. This was somewhat common back in the ancient Near East. At least he would get some return on his slave. And the slave begs him. Really, this is the only card that he can play. Have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. Here the servant thinks that he can pay the unpayable debt. Just have patience with me, master. Give me some time. I can pay. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Do you know who has compassion? Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Chapter 14, verse 14, he felt compassion for them and he healed the sick. Chapter 15, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people. Jesus has compassion for you. 
No matter the size of the debt, he has compassion. In our parable, the king released the servant. He's freed, he's pardoned, he's dismissed from this debt. And he forgave him the debt. The king will not accept any payment at all. He doesn't even hesitate, does he? He, has, he forgives right away. This is an act of pure grace on the part of the king. And again, this parable, we want to keep this in view, is about forgiveness. But I need to pause here just for a moment to talk about the gospel. Does this not remind you of the gospel? The gospel is good news. It's the message of how you and I can be made right with God. His son Jesus is the king. Jesus rules and he reigns this morning. Jesus is all-powerful and he's extremely merciful. He is a God of all compassion. You and I are like the slaves. We are enslaved to various sins and desires. Sins are the wrong things that we do. Sins are the things that we do to break God's law or God's rule. And God hates sin. Sin separates us from God. Just one sin eternally separates us from God, let alone a lifetime. You and I have rung up a debt. It is an astronomical debt. It's a debt too high to pay. And some may even say to Jesus, like the slave, have patience with me, Jesus. One day I'll get to this. I will pay it down. But that is impossible. Because we cannot pay the debt that we owe for our sin. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. And he paid the debt that you owe for your sin. He will release you and forgive you that debt if you believe upon him. The debt is cleared. He, he wipes it away. This morning our national debt stands at $30 trillion. Every one second, $45 is added to that debt. Imagine if someone stood up and said, that debt's forgiven. And if that were actually possible, it'd be kind of crazy if someone just stood up, stood up and said that. But to have that debt completely wiped away, that's what God does with our sin when we come to him through Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And if for the first time you've heard that message and you've believed upon it, I'd love to talk to you more about that. Come see me out in the foyer after the service. I want to talk about, to you more about what it means to follow Jesus and, and believe upon him. And if you've been forgiven this morning to the point of our parable, then forgive. Freely you've been forgiven, freely forgive others. Do not be like the servant of our story. He was released. And he was forgiven, but then verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him. Our slave is on the hunt. Verse 28 sounds almost immediate. It's almost as though this, this king or the, the slave has left the king and he's gone out to find a servant right away. And it doesn't sound accidental either. It doesn't sound like he bumped into him at Hagen's or he saw him in the clearance aisle at Kohl's. Fully forgiven of his debt, this slave makes a beeline to someone who owes him. 
He collects from someone like himself. This is a fellow slave. It's the same type of person. It's the same situation. These men are equals. And he treats him harshly. Even brutally. It sounds like a mobster. He grabs him by the throat to choke him. And if all of that isn't wicked enough, look at the amount that is owed. A hundred denarii. That's about a, a hundred days worth of wages. Think about how small that is compared to what he owed the king. And the fellow slave pleads with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. That's almost word for word, verse 26. That's the same thing that our forgiven slave said. But he would not relent. It's not that he could not, it's that he would not. Imprisonment, which was his idea for the slave who would not pay. Imprisonment would compel the family to pay. This guy's a jerk. How arrogant. How cruel. How ruthless. It's not that he just withheld forgiveness, but he did it to someone just like him. He saw repayment from someone just like him. More than anything, it's sad. His fellow slaves catch wind of this. My Bible describes them as deeply grieved. That spirit of unforgiveness, it affected the community. In verse 31, they report him to the king. We can acknowledge from the text, yes, clearly they turned him in. But I want you to see, too, that this unforgiving slave does this to himself. We always build our own prison when we withhold forgiveness. We're going to discuss that more in a moment. Verse 32, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. This king is angry. God is capable of unconditional forgiveness, and God is capable of unmitigated anger. Some like to contrast the God of the Old Testament with the Jesus of the New Testament. The claim being that, that Jesus is love, but God was too harsh and too judgmental. This is not an either-or situation. Because the Godhead is both perfectly and eternally absolutely loving and perfect in his judgment. The mercy of the king was received by the slave, and the slave then withheld that mercy. He happily received that mercy, not justice. He didn't get justice. He got mercy, and then he went out looking for justice. I think this parable turns our concept of mercy and justice on its head. In other words, justice for you and I, this can't be our default mode. We need to be a believing community that's known for mercy. Let mercy be the norm. For the slave of our parable, mercy tended to be rare. 
something to be received always, absolutely, but maybe given occasionally. The scripture speaks to that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And James chapter 2, verse 13, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. While we cry, at times, rightly so, for justice, may we be known for mercy. Our Lord concludes here. He answers Peter's question, speaking to the disciples. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And again, just to to be clear on this, this parable is not about salvation. It's possible to read verse 35 and think that, that God's going to cast us out among the torturers if we mess up on our forgiveness. God does not redeem only those who are perfect at forgiving. His kingdom would be populated by zero people if he did. You and I are saved by grace, not by works. We're saved by grace, not how good we are at forgiving. The point of the parable is that those who are forgiven by God forgive others. Those who are forgiven by God forgive others. And we will hang on every word. As Jesus rounds us out in verse 35, each, each is an important word. Each of you, no Christian is exempt from the command to forgive. Each one of you, me, we're all called to forgive. Jesus may be standing there, he may be speaking to the disciples or to a crowd, but he's saying to each of those there, each of you, forgive. Forgive who? His brother or his sister. You and I are fellow servants. We all serve the same king. Jesus has placed a unique emphasis on the people of God in Matthew 18. He's done it again in this parable. Certainly, again, we should forgive others. But he specifies brother in this parable, and we want to note that. We want to heed that. And Jesus could have stopped there. The thought is complete. But look at the last three words. From your heart. That changes the source of forgiveness. There's a forgiveness that is sourced in the mouth. I can say to you, I forgive you. But there's a forgiveness that is sourced in the heart. A forgiveness that is meant. A heartfelt forgiveness. Because it's easier for me to speak forgiveness than it is for me to mean it. I can speak forgiveness, but I can hold a grudge. Jesus didn't stop there. The last three words matter. Forgive from your heart. Because we're forgiven, we forgive. And the one who forgave what we owe calls you and I to go and be like him, to forgive those who sin against us. And to apply this message now, I want to conclude with three points. I want to look at the heart of forgiveness, the release of forgiveness, and the generosity of forgiveness. In verse 35, we conclude that Jesus spoke of a heart forgiveness, forgiving from the heart. What does this mean? 
I think what Jesus means when he says this is, is, is a full forgiveness, a forgiveness that is complete or comprehensive. I've used a tool over the years from a ministry called Peacemaker Ministries. And they, they list on their website, on their brochures, something called the Four Promises of Forgiveness. This has been very helpful. It's been very instructive. The first promise of forgiveness, again, we're looking for full and complete forgiveness. I will not dwell on this incident. What does it mean to fully forgive? I will not dwell on this incident. That means that you and I aren't going to keep turning this over and over in our minds. We're not going to rehearse that wonderful comeback that we thought too late that we should have said. We're not going to reenact it. We're not going to think about it. We're going to let it go. Philippians 4 draws a direct line between our, our thought life and our hearts, how the things that we think can affect our soul. Jesus says, let's make sure that that is a clean line. Let's not dwell upon it. Let's forgive someone. It's going to be hard to forgive them if, if we refuse to forget. Secondly, I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. God does this with us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. If you've got a good theology, you're saying, hold on a minute. Doesn't God know all things? God can't forget, which is true. It's not in God's nature to forget. He could remember all of our sins in chronological order from birthday to March 6, 2022. He could list them out. He could tell us all the ways we've sinned and haven't even realized we were sinning. But God does not do that. He chooses not to. He says, I remember no more. And this is a good lesson for us. Because it's a little bit ironic, you and I can forget, we do forget, we forget where we put the keys and where we put the remote, yet we can't forget what Susie said to us a year ago. To forget is to choose to let it go, to not bring this incident up again, and not to use it against someone. Thirdly, I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not talk to others about this incident. Forgiveness avoids gossip. And the Bible has quite a bit to say about gossip. I'm going to use the book of Proverbs for just a preview of it. In chapter 16, verse 28, gossip separates friends. In chapter 20, verse 19, gossip is the mark of a person to avoid. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 4, gossip reveals something evil about those who listen to it. You see, forgiveness from the heart doesn't speak of the sin anymore. We're not going to think about it. We're not going to bring it up against someone. We're not going to talk to others about it. And fourthly, forgiveness. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And again, like the first three promises, this also is a decision. We choose to do this. We choose to love a brother to love a sister and to let it go. So when we forgive, we promise to stop thinking about the incident, to never bring it up again with the person, 
to not discuss it with other people, and to not let it hinder our relationship. I want you to see, secondly, a freedom from forgiveness. You know, it may be thought that we are punishing others, that other person, by withholding forgiveness. But I contend that the greatest victim when we withhold forgiveness is ourselves. We are liberated when we forgive. And there's a connection between our, our soul and our body, between our mind and our body. There's some really interesting studies that have been done on this, by the way. One study has hooked up 70 volunteers to electrodes, and they're going to monitor these 70 volunteers, watching their facial tension, sweating, heart rate, blood pressure, and so on. And they told these 70, 70 volunteers to think through four different scenarios while they're monitoring the data. The first memory they were to recall would be being hurt, remembering the hurt. The second would be holding a grudge. The third would be empathizing. And the fourth would be forgiving. The results of the study indicated that people tended to be more depressed when they were unforgiving. And even when they were told to stop thinking about those memories their body continued to respond like they were. Other studies reported depression and high blood pressure, even cardiovascular disease. You see, withholding forgiveness just isn't good for us. And I'm only speaking physically this morning. The Bible has a wealth to say about its spiritual impact upon us also. You see, ultimately we're hurting ourselves when we refuse to forgive. Because there is a freedom and a liberation we have in Christ when we do forgive. Finally, I want you to hear about this generosity of forgiveness. If we're looking to be dispensers of mercy to the world, we can live as forgiving people. You and I, we don't have to carry around all that junk that comes with not forgiving all the time. These are burdens that we're, we're not made to bear. Many times at the outset, when someone sins against us or causes offense, we can immediately kick that to the curb. Out of hand, we can dismiss it right away. Good sense makes one slow to anger, says Proverbs 19, 11, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. We don't have to be offended. We are free to be generous with the mercy of God. But we can forgive and we can move on away from that. And by the way, we can also forgive without people ever asking us. Now, we may not gain the relationship. Reconciliation can be a different step or another level, but we do maintain our freedom when we forgive. We might even be tempted to think that because we need to repent to God, other people need to repent to us. The problem is, we aren't God. Because you and I have been forgiven, and by the way, we're probably going to sin against someone too. At the moment of our slave was forgiven his 10,000 talents, he should have immediately gone to forgive his fellow servant, his 100 denarii, when he went out to find his fellow slave in verse 28. It should have been to take him to dinner, not collect a debt. That must be our response to sin against us. We forgive because we've been forgiven. So as I close this morning, 
I want to ask you, who do you need to forgive? Is it a brother or a sister in Christ? Is it someone in the room this morning? Do not, do not fail to forgive a fellow believer. Maybe it's someone who hasn't even realized that he or she has sinned against you. Maybe it's someone who's moved away. You may never see them again. Maybe it's someone who's passed away. And this morning, you can lay down that burden. You can step out of that prison. Someone may very well say to me, Michael, you don't understand the sin that's being committed against me. The psychological torture. The sexual sin. Those words that come up in the moment that come out so fast but linger so long. You don't know how bad they hurt. And I don't. I don't understand the depth of the pain of the various sins that we have all brought in here this morning committed against us. But Jesus does. Jesus understands that sin. He reserved some of his last words for some of the people that treated him worse. For those who caused his excruciating pain and those who hammered the spikes into his wrists and those who tore open his back that as he spoke, the skin pink dangled from his back against the cross. And what did he pray? He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. By his power this morning, you too can forgive. Forgive a spouse. Forgive a child. Forgive a parent. Forgive any who sinned against you. And come to the Lord's table today, proclaiming his forgiveness because you've been forgiven and because we forgive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the freedom and the liberation we have in Jesus. Thank you that you've forgiven us. Oh, Father, we are thankful for your mercy, and we want to be like you. Lord, we want to forgive. We want to be known as a church, as men and women of God, people of mercy. Oh, Father, please help us. Give us a grace to do these things. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.